Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. If you asked a room full of people what the cutest animal around is, I'm going to bet that the sea otter will get lots of votes. The image of these furry fiends floating on their backs, munching on sea urchins, is quintessential West Coast Canada. But with the onset of colonialism, these creatures were hunted to near extinction levels for their valuable fur. Now, centuries later, through the work of conservation and reintroduction, the population has started coming back. On Haida Gwaii, sea otters have started to pop up after decades without sightings. While the return is being celebrated, there are other considerations when a species returns. Nisi Guju is the marine planning manager at the Council of the Haida Nation. Good morning. Hi. Thank you for being with us. I was just wondering how it feels to see a sea otter along the coast of Haida Gwaii after the population was thought to be gone forever. Uh, yeah, I'm one of the few uh, people that have been able to see them because they're still on pretty remote areas of Haida Gwaii. Uh, so they're not close to our towns. And I've been lucky to spot a couple. Um, it's it's very exciting. It feels like we've anticipated their natural return for a long time. And Yes, they are very cute to see them <laughs> amidst the coat. Yeah. Tell me tell me about that moment. Where did you see them and when? Um, I saw them first in 2019 on a survey um, on the very bottom tip of Guayanas, Cape St. James or Gunflints in Haida. Um, yeah, on a survey looking for them. Okay. And how many sea otters do you think are actually now living along the shores of Haida Gwaii? We don't know an exact number. Um, in 2019, we had a, a thorough survey that found 13, and that's our highest numbers yet. But um, yeah, because they're still in such remote areas, it's really opportunistic to be able to go out and count them. And uh, really depends on the weather on the day that you happen to be there. Of course, it's very many times a year, so we don't know yet. Where do you think they came from? Um, we've been seeing sightings of at least solitary males for the last couple of decades on both the south and the north end of Haida Gwaii. So we would assume that those are populations coming from either the central coast or northern Vancouver Island when they're on the southern part of Haida Gwaii, likely an Alaskan population from the north. Yeah. What has this return meant to the community who are now you know, interacting or even just hearing about these animals? Uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, it's a big conversation for our communities. We obviously, uh, there's a really good understanding of the ecological role that sea otters play, uh, like you mentioned. But we don't, we don't have a living relationship with sea otters because they were extirpated in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, so what we know about our relationship with sea otters is uh, through oral history and um, old art, uh, but also we've maintained our cultural use of sea otter through trade with, uh, mostly with Alaska. Mm -hmm. 
So a lot of our regalia has incorporated sea otter for uh, throughout history, and um, we're just we have the opportunity to kind of relearn that relationship based on what we know from our oral histories. That must be hugely significant. Yeah, it is. And and then the other piece, there's the cultural piece and learning that relationship. And the other piece is that it's really going to change the ecosystems that we are used to and that we rely on for food. Um, so we're very aware that it's a, it's a complicated um, situation for for a community, and it has been complicated for other communities along the coast that have already had theaters return. Let's talk about one of the aspects of that compu- complication. This animal hasn't been in the area for a long time, as you say, and while it might seem like a purely positive story, there are some potential ecological implications for their return. What are some of those? So um, as as people know, sea otters are quite voracious eaters, and um, they target a lot of the same shellfish that humans eat. Yeah. Um, so depending on on the the type of ecosystem in an area, um, they can really impact uh, sort uh, food sources that we also rely on. So, for example, clam beds. We also know about the. Um, the kelp forest and sea urchin example. So in places where there's urchin barrens, we expect that um, sea otters would would help with those urchin barrens and um, allowing kelp to grow back. Yeah. When you say voracious eaters, just how voracious? Give us an idea. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I understand that they need to eat as much as their quarter of their weight every single day. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's pretty shocking for such a, we imagine them to be cute little small furry things. Yeah, exactly. So what's your sense of what it's going to take to balance, you know, the excitement about the return, but also make sure that the species that are at risk aren't um, obliterated by their presence? Yeah, so we have a pretty unique opportunity on Haida Gwaii. Um, Sea otters have returned or been reintroduced uh, on other places on BC's coast. And in those cases, the the local communities and the nations there uh, didn't necessarily have the opportunity that we have to plan ahead and plan for managing those that uh, population. Mm-hmm. So we we have the opportunity to learn from our neighbors. So we've been talking a lot with New Channel Nations and um, the Haldzik Nation, other Central Coast nations, to learn from their experience. And um, yeah, we have this opportunity to to plan ahead, uh, knowing that they're slowly repopulating, but right now they haven't come close to our communities. We also know that uh, in the past, when sea otters did coexist with Haida people, that we would have had uh, ways to manage their populations and keep them out of certain areas where humans were harvesting and then allow them to eat in other areas. Yeah. Before we let you go, um, I, I really want to get a sense of what it means to you as a member of the of, of the community to not only have seen these animals, but also to know that there's a prospect of their return, both for um, ecological reasons, but also for traditional reasons. It, yeah, it's it's really exciting to me, and it's been really special to to work more on this project. Um, we have a good understanding on Haida Gwaii that that the missing sea otters is a um, a misbalance in our ecosystem. And um, it's exciting to think about bringing more balance back. 
um, it's exciting to think about all the factors that have changed since the last time sea otters were here. And um, yeah, I I personally am really excited to be able to incorporate our local sea otters into our culture once again. Um, I also weave, so I'm I have worked with sea otter fur traded from Alaska, and I think that that's that's something to look forward to is is learning our our own relationship with them once again, um, both on the land and in terms of harvesting and coexisting with an animal. Yeah, it's really quite historic, a historic moment that you're witnessing. Mm-hmm. What what will you and your team be watching for next as this population hopefully continues to, to grow? We'll continue to be uh, doing surveys to count them. Um, and we have a good network of uh citizen reports so that's been really helpful just to kind of track how how far their populations are spreading and how many there are the council of the haida nation will be planning for uh, management and looking at what scenarios um, we have an ecosystem model that was a part of the sea otter project in the last couple of years and that can help us just predict different scenarios that will help us in in management planning for the future Nisi, we have just a few seconds left, but I'm wondering what you think the lesson is from this episode uh, that you're witnessing right now in Haida Gwaii. Um, I think the lesson, it, it is balance and it's um, learning different different ways that balance exists and relearning a relationship. Yeah, relearning a relationship. Thank you so much, Nisi Guju. I much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Nisi Guju is the Marine Planning Manager at the Council of the Haida Nation. She was on Haida Gwaii. December 2017. Nadia Atwi's vehicle is discovered wedged into some bushes at a park near her home. just want to tell her that I love her. Come back today. I would forget about what happened. But Nadia is never seen again. If I go back, I would react differently, but I didn't know. The next call, the case of Nadia Atwi, available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. This week marks 50 years since the adoption of the Endangered Species Act in the United States. And while it may be an American regulation, its impact has been felt here in Canada and around the world. But that act is now under threat, and the species it was designed to protect and preserve could be lost. Kim Hecox is a former ranger with the United States National Park Service and a writer focused on the natural world. The act has been very successful. 99% of the species that have been listed have been saved. Some have been lost, a few, but many have been saved. What's happened now is that because the act has been around for 50 years this year, now finally the juggernaut of development is running up against it, logging, minerals, mining, oil and gas development, coal, everywhere. And part of the reason for this is that inventory and monitoring of species in certain areas has has been done over the decades. We know what's out there. We didn't in 1973. So now the act, 50 years later, is unpopular in certain quarters because People just don't have a high regard for other species. Let's let's just say it the way it is. It's important that we move from a place of ownership 
to a place of stewardship, that we learn to become better caretakers of the larger than human world. And if we do this, we'll all live better, more prosperous lives. James Snyder monitors issues of biodiversity. He is the Vice President of Science, Knowledge and Innovation for the World Wildlife Fund of Canada. James Snyder is here in studio with me. Hello. Hi, good morning. Thank you for being with us. You just listened to the interview just now with Nisi from Haida Gwaii. How heartening is it to have these increasing numbers of sea otters coming back to the coast of British Columbia? There's an element of it that I think is inspirational in terms of really one of the few examples that we can point to in terms of the success of a recovery of a species at risk. And in this case, a species that was extirpated from that region. But it also tells a story of how complex that task is um, today and managing for the interconnectedness of these ecosystems and at times the trade-offs between some of those values. Yeah. So that's one story of one species. I wonder if you could give us a, a big picture uh, idea of where endangered species are at in the world right now? I know a big question, but um, where where are things at? Well, you know, unfortunately, the trend in terms of biodiversity writ large is not good. You mm. know, um, it would be characterized by some ecologists as a mass extinction event, seeing the declines of biodiversity from animals and plants and beyond around the world. Um, and that trend is quite clear. Um, and for the recovery of our species at risk, that story while in some cases a story of positive recovery, the dominant trend is continued losses, the trend of downward declines in those populations of even our most imperiled species continues, and we see extinction happening on our watch. Yeah. Is, is that extinction happening on an accelerated basis? Is it, is it increasing? I think that's an excellent question in terms of the pace and scale, um, and that is something that certainly keeps me up at night in terms of like how quickly these things are happening. Yeah, so it is happening quickly. Yeah. This week is the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Endangered Species Act. What was the intent of that legislation? Well, you know, it's funny, look back 50 years ago in terms of um, bringing forward environmental protection uh, legislation um, in the U.S. and really the beginning of, I think, of uh, a significant push more broadly in terms of regulation and, and legislation and policy around the world for recovery of, of species and wildlife. Um, and I think for me, I look back at some of the successes and the mainstreaming uh, to some degree and consideration of environmental conservation, but also recognizing that the, the task at hand for us today is much larger. Um, and the urgency, I think, is the, the central question um, in terms of it's taken us 50 years to get to the point where we are today, and we don't have another 50 years ahead of us in terms of the time that it takes to enable not only good policy, but the programs that are required to see broad-scale change in the relationship that we have with nature, the relationship that we have with biodiversity, and ultimately our human footprint on those ecosystems. I imagine it had an effect on Canada's laws on endangered species. I wonder with that concern in mind, you know, that we don't have another 50 years ahead of us, whether you think that influence is enough. Well, you know, I do wonder the role of like legislation and policy, and I think that again has been brought forward. We've seen some significant, significant new commitments here by the government of Canada, including on an international stage. We saw just a week ago in Dubai, the UAE, in terms of the commitments related to climate change. In at the COP meeting. At, at COP, at yeah. COP twenty eight, and then a year ago, it was essentially a year ago now in Montreal the commitments the government of Canada had made on a global stage in terms of a really ambitious set of goals and targets. 
uh, to see the broad scale recovery of nature. Those multilateral agreements are such an important foundation in terms of the work that we have to take. But bringing that forward in terms of our domestic policy, our own Species at Risk Act, has that been very effective? Some would argue no. We're seeing the continued trends in the same direction. Um, and, and then in turn, engaging the provinces and the territories, because that's a lot of where the resource decisions that were made around management of the environment are made by the yeah. provinces and the territories. Can you give us a sense of just what was agreed in Montreal? What was that pact about? Well, so it's a series of quite a number of goals and targets, uh, one of which I think that's front and center for many of us relates to broad scale protection. So protection of 30% of nature, meaning our lands and our waters, including our inland freshwater ecosystems by 2030, as well, in addition to that, broad scale restoration of degraded lands by 30% as well. Those are really big goals. I think right now in our protected areas, we're at about 14% of our lands that are protected in Canada. So we're going to see that double in now less than a decade. Incredible. Can you talk about a little bit about how the recovery of biodiversity intersects with climate change? The climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis are deeply intertwined. Yeah. The causes of biodiversity loss, many of them are the same causes of what's leading to climate change. And so that central realization that the, the causes are much the same, but in turn, the solutions that we can take can have that dual benefit is what brings me great optimism. The role of so-called nature-based climate solutions, investing in the protection and restoration of nature can deliver those emissions reductions that we need to get to a 1.5 degrees Celsius future and also see the broad scale recovery of species at risk and, and culturally important species and beyond. Yeah. When you think back to when that Endangered Species Act was, was inaugurated, in the U.S. 50 years ago. Do you think there was any sense of the policymakers back, at, back then of the picture that we are living right now? Would they have had any idea that we'd be where we are now? No, I think the conservation today is a very different question than it was in the 1970s. Yeah. Recognizing the deep interconnection of the climate and biodiversity crisis, knowing that ultimately the environment today is very different um, and is constantly evolving. Um, and so, therefore, um, there's this enhanced complexity uh, of the conservation actions that we take. And the other side to it, I think, which is important to note, is there's this history of, like, single species conservation. We'll do this one species at a time, yeah. right? We don't have that luxury any longer. It also is ineffective in that there are nearly 900 scientifically assessed species at risk in Canada alone, wow. right? Wow. Um, and so we need to be taking complex ecosystem approaches that understand the deep interconnectedness of, of those um, species and their broader environment, and in turn, our role in those ecosystems. Yeah. Can you, in the last um, minute or so that we have, can you explain what that holistic approach would look like? What needs to happen? Well, we're managing for a broad suite of values, right? We're trying to in, um, build um, the biodiversity benefits for species, for wildlife. We're trying to increase the, uh, the sequestration of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere by nature into our wetlands, into our forests, into our, our kelp forests, actually, mm -hmm. a great important uh, blue carbon ecosystem, but also building resilience to a changing climate 
for instance, the growing risk of wildfire, how do we enhance the resilience of our ecosystems to that future change? And at the same time, delivering benefits in terms of food security, access to things like traditional medicines, integration of different knowledge systems, both Western science and traditional ecological knowledge. The task in front of us, I think, is, is vast. And that's why we need a real, really a whole of society approach that this is the cornerstone, something that we focus on with a very deliberate intention if we're going to be effective at, at really meeting head on those two crises. James, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much. James Snyder is the Vice President of Science, Knowledge and Innovation for the World Wildlife Fund of Canada. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.